Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> Orbits. Orbits. Lastminute.com. Lastminute.com. Price <laughs> last minute. Trivago. Trivago. Is that the one you're thinking Trivago. of? Trivago. Trivago. No, the one with the squirrel. How's this? How is that? How is level? Trivago. Trivago. This is Noonmark, a podcast for Make Ready. We're glad to be back here in the studio with these microphones. And uh, in the meantime, we've been working on many new projects, which uh, we can tell you about down the road. But anyway, in short, hello, we've got things to talk about. So welcome, Louis-Jacques Dava. Hi, Patrick. It's good to it's good to be back. It's good to be back. Yeah, I'm thinking I'm back. I'm thinking I'm back. <laughs> John De Palma. Hello. Hello. I don't have another piano quote for you. Or you, Eli Bernstein. Hello. Hello. Ahoy. Ahoy. Dude. I don't know. That's terrible piano. Anyway, so welcome to Noonmark. This week uh, on our AM segment. Oh, I'm Patrick Pittman, by the way, also. I'm so amateur and out of practice that I forget that you have no idea who I am. But in our AM segment this week, we're going to be picking about the concept of wellness, Um, whether the spinning, cross-fitting, child's pose, striking, downward-facing dog variety, or the juice-squeezing, gluten-avoiding, chia seed-eating type. They often go together, and if you throw them in a Vitamix, the results are very good for you indeed. (laughs) Between our need for work-life balance and our concern with self-care, why are we so caught up in our emotional and physical health? And in the PM, we'll be looking west to the fate of Burning Man, its founding philosophy of self-organizing anarchy and Dadaist self-expression and what it's since become since the Silicon Valley guys moved in. And I use the word guys very deliberately. So wellness, in one form or another, we all need it in our lives. Some of us go on runs, others meditate, all of us try not to eat too much junk food and fail or succeed in varying measures, depending on what's in the vending machine at the time. Whatever the particular activity, all of it's in the name of balance, of self-care or inner peace, a tribute to the God that gave us the equation, healthy body, healthy mind. What could be wrong with that? But on the other hand, it's not too hard to see that these practices are as much an exercise in narcissism as they are in our cause. Fad diets and exercise routines are characteristic of a wealthy, idle, and politically apathetic middle class that has nothing better to do than worry about registering 10,000 steps on their Fitbits, not to mention spend way too much on a BPA-free water bottle. Guys, do you have your smoothies this morning? No, I had a mango this morning, though. Mango? But I am, th- mornings are typically healthy for me. I, I eat, uh, I've been pretty constant. On I don't know. Mangoes are high sugar. One, one of the things that triggered this conversation is this shift in thinking back to sugars being evil and fats being just fine, which frankly sits well with me and my chosen diet, which is good, healthy, fatty things and not too much in the way processed sugars. But specifically on that, smoothies, fructose, mangoes, is, is fruit sugar bad too? Tell me. Uh, I mean, none of us here is a nutritionist. Uh, mm. <laughs> in case that wasn't okay, obvious. Disclaimer, man. Yeah. <laughs> now, now just make some shit up. Um, I think it's better than processed sugar, but I think people say that you shouldn't even have too much uh, naturally occurring sugar. Yeah, it's funny when you, but, when you have kids that how you know you're now being judged by people if you like if they drink juice like your kids your kids drink juice like as if you were right you know giving them poison poison yeah. yeah. It's certainly like it's for packet juice. You're talking, not like you put six. No, pounds, no, just you juice. Put six like even yeah. greens in even, a blender. Even orange juice. I yeah. mean, you know, just regular orange juice yeah. or apple juice, whatever. Which well, we, I, I personally 
we don't do that. But just now that you are being judged for that, it's yeah. not just Coca Cola is bad. It's now you know. It's true. Well, I think I think there's two things to take out of that. One is the the fact that that yeah the the uh, the villain has changed from fat to sugar, and that kind of puts the notion of health and it kind of historicizes it, right? So you have to go well if what's right in one generation is wrong in the next. What what does any of this mean? What is you know what is a fact if it's if it's historically dependent but then also if there's an uptick right if 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 you were giving your kids uh red meat you know a generation ago or too much red meat or maybe a little bit too much fat it's doubtful that you would have been given the same amount of flack right and so i think that the other thing that's changed is this is that there's an uptick in in just a societal uptick in how much we care about this performative wellness and policing of that Yeah. yeah policing and personal accountability i mean to one another. Yeah. But not just accountability to one another. I think to ourselves too. I think that we're communally uh, more anxious about it, more uh, fixated on it. Um, actually, I wanted to say, so uh, I have a good friend who's a doctor at, and he's, um, he's a trained pathologist. And I think he was, he was obviously being a little tongue in cheek when he said this, but he was like, I have no idea what people mean when they say healthy. He's like, you know, it's a, it's a very vaguely defined term. And yet it's a word that we use operatively all the time, right? We mm. use it. Oh, that's healthy. Oh, that's good for you. Mm. That's nutritious. Well, we say that or, every or day. Or that like... has, you know, that gets rid of the toxins using all these vague terms um, that are soci- uh, scientifically ill-founded mm-hmm. um, to do all sorts of work for us. It's, a, you know, I, my uh, general getting caught in that paradox is i don't believe at all in any of that detox religion like there's a lot of um good science refuting a lot of what's what's sold out there at the same time i do know that a smoothie full of like every green thing under the sun really helps when you're hungover oh i can believe Mm -hmm. that and there's certain things that like correspond to or correlate with feeling good directly after and i know i'm f- more familiar with like the immediate effects like that than i am with like how they contributes to my overall health and my you know lifespan i have no idea um but uh, like i've learned how my body responds to certain foods just as i've learned like my allergies you know and like that's the only scale i can really be sure of yeah i think it's about but, but there's also so wellness also goes beyond food obviously yeah and i think it's like spiritual well-being and now we're talking more than ever about you know mindfulness and oh, uh, totally. and uh, meditation and all of that. So I think it's also one thing we want to talk about, right? Yeah, totally. There's being physically active, whether it's uh, well physically active, but with a view not simply to being in good shape, but with the kind of you know emotional and spiritual benefits it's supposed to confer. So yeah, mm. going on your daily run, doing your yoga practice, Pilates, whatever you know, being being not just strong but limber and and you know physically um, kind of well adjusted and aligned and things like that. Um, and I think that, yeah, th- you know, these are all good things in, in and of themselves, right? I mean, I think it's easy for us, uh, all of a pretty skeptical bent, to just roll our eyes at all of it, um, perhaps acknowledging that we're, we're, we all succumb to it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I, but- ca- I can simultaneously own a blender and call it a very apocalyptic class-based kind of thing in which... Yeah, totally. Oppression can be manifest through this sort of demonstrated, uh, idealized idea of what good living should be, Gwyneth Goop style, that sort of thing. But I can say that and still live. Yeah, and that's what I really liked about the article that was in the overprint, we put in the overprint, about um, it first, like a historical kind of like summary of the different ways that we've looked at fitness and like group fitness and like diet programs and stuff. Um, and for me, it was kind of like a good personal check. Like I'm 
I don't do any of these like programs. Um, and, but I, I know I should, and I should be reminded of it over and over and over that, you know, you just have a body that you need to take care of. And that's just something that any smart person does, responsible adult does. Um, and like, I like to have all these excuses that are kind of like ideological. Um, but I liked how she went through each and every, or, like each kind of like criticism and then saying that like, you know, in the end, we're all kind of responsible for ourselves. And in the end, um, you know, these things have uh, become trends or their origins were in like people reclaiming their ownership of their body and their autonomy. And like, you can argue for it ideologically as well. Right. Um, rather than just saying like, uh, you know, my uh, family does that, you know, like, well, fitness, like working out helps your body like be stronger. Like that's just like, th yeah. there's also just like the pure, just like yeah. physical. I, I know I there's so many different things like uh, going on here, right? Like it's good to rail against, it's good to rail against kind of just, you know, large scale commercialized globalized food industry, which is largely a mess. So, and it's good for you to, yeah, to eat organic, to be physically active. Um, but then there is, there is this other side um, where we're also just kind of spending a lot more time worrying about ourselves and not about, you know, doing something in the world, you know, making something of your talents or, you know, engaging politically, you know, things, things that are bigger than yourself, right? So, you know, this, you know, as you said, Patrick, narcissistic element to it, right? This idea that, mm. you know, I, I am anxious about my own well-being and I should devote a lot of attention to my own well-being you know, but you can look at people who just, they, they're too busy. They have more pressing needs. They don't worry about that stuff. Um, and it's obviously not good to romanticize people that have pressing needs, but to, to, to be caught up in something bigger than yourself is important. I, I, th I think there's, there's another side to that as well. When you talk about people who are too busy for these things, who can't afford these things, who have families to feed and only mm -hmm. 30 minutes to have enough food for five people or whatever these things. Wellness of any, and this is why it's not just about food, but I think it always starts with food. To my mind, if there is a, a wellness pyramid of which a nutrition pyramid can be within it, I think nutrition is at the base of it. It's you start with eating well. You start with knowing what you should eat. Beyond that, there is exercise. Beyond that, there is the privilege of, and you know, in certain societies, meditation is not a privilege, but a, a requirement in these things. But within our society, mm -hmm. these things are the next level beyond that. It's the focusing on the politics of, of nutrition and what it means and all the nuances of that that I think get you towards the wellness of a society as a whole. Of course, you should encourage exercise. Of mm. course, you should encourage good living. Yeah, I'm not sure it's a pyramid because it's a cycle. More it's a cycle, like sure. The food intake is based on the energy that you, you know, that mm. you that you spend and, and so forth. And uh, two notions that I think are important when I think about wellness is, is one is the notion of control. As I think uh, we're used to have a lot of control in our lives. And I think now uh, a next frontier is and we've been looking at that with a client for which we uh, we've done some work with uh, in the in the healthcare space. Uh, it's this notion, basically, this notion of a control applied to your own being, and that uh, certainly changes a little bit how we um, how we view health in general and wellness in general. Right. And instead of wellness being woven into our lives. A little bit at a time it's now fixed moments where you have to yeah. you know and people the, rushing driving 70 kilometers because they want don't want to be late to the spa mm -hmm, where they're going to yeah. go for to relax mm -hmm. i mean it's I, i've been in like, <laughs> she's just yeah. like do you realize how yeah. crazy it is that we're like late 
to get there well, I think because it's hitting, our, it's our moment hitting, to relax. Whereas, I think you're hitting on this, this idea of uh, the, the irony at the core of this, right? I mean, that we're, we're anxious to feel well, right? And we drive ourselves crazy with that. And, and But also programming wellness in ways that normally uh, you should be able to, to, to include wellness in all kinds of small, discrete activities. But one thing that also, and that's my second notion, is the performative nature of, um, you know, the whole phenomena of, you know, I mean, to do, to live a balanced life, to have, to do sports, or you don't need to have the Tour de France gear and everything. Now, if you start cycling, you're cycling, like meaning right. you need the equipment, you need to be in the proper mindset, you need to have the proper, uh, you know, apparel and 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 technology and devices. Right. Whereas it used to be that you could just have a bike and use it in a certain way, and you didn't have to be committing right. to a bigger activity that's formalized, that's in some that has a certain uh, um, quite of performative nature to it because it yeah. can be woven into your life. Yeah. You you can just do something at home when you wake up every day and be in shape yeah. rather than just saying no, no 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 I'm doing performative this. performative and aestheticized and, exactly and, and, and part of the compartmentalized and commodified and all that kind of feeding into Instagram and social media and that's all you see and, when you're yeah. not participating. Like I admittedly do not participate in most of these things, right? And so therefore that's all I see. And what this article talks about is um to appreciate yeah, and acknowledging the lived experience of it. And like I, that is it, the, its value. And if I don't participate, I don't see that value because all I see is this commodification and like a uh, productization. And there was a, um, a friend of, um, uh, a friend of the family was telling a story like typical executive, uh, and, uh, guy who said, I'm going to go back in shape, bought a, decided that the category would be cycling bought the the super carbon bicycle in Montreal and kind of climbs Mount Royal and it's kind of a hard climb uh, especially there's so many potholes there that you may die at every right. corner because it's uh, reverse moguls yeah so after a number of weeks of you know doing this very painful beginning then it gets a little bit easier and then at some point you're like wow I'm I'm happy with what I'm doing and then as he climbs there's he hears this clinging noise in the back and it's sort of a rattling bicycle coming and <laughs> a guy just passing him. But it's like a guy, you know, very uh, on a very like old a, bike. Like a rusty steel. Yeah. And the, the milk cart in the back, you're like, and just because with, with, you know, calves, big, <laughs> right. huge calves. Right. And just someone that's very much in shape, but doesn't need the classification right. of, I'm doing sports right. now. I'm it's doing not a this. Status and I'm the group. It's yeah. not a status. Yeah, 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 yeah as totally. you said. And I think it's an important thing that um, we can't talk about wellness without um, talking a little bit about that. I find one thing I wanted to talk about in, in this. It, there's been a bunch of articles shared in recent times, and they all get a whole lot of attention from the media on, on the nature of these changing ideas of what is good for us and how a scientific understanding of that changes 
over time. I mean, Eli, before you talked about we should eat organic because it's good for us. Why, that's a base presumption that you just have totally. that, that exists. And I, I believe the same thing. It's because of the science that's that we've consumed over the last however many decades. Right. Um, there's some interest. There's, the New York Times put out a great clickbait piece the other day that was actually kind of good about the fact that um, there's a, a lot been a presumption in um, nutrition studies for a while that um, kids who skip breakfast generally there's a link between that and obesity uh, but this this um, person in this really weird anti-breakfast manifesto that just seems to have a yeah, this is a, it was in the upshot blog and the person just kind of actually seemed to have a real problem with breakfast but um, <laughs> links to a bunch of st- all the studies kind of say no there's no real link between that and then even if there is a study that's showing any kind of link like you know, you have to understand the people working in these are working in an industry where all of the funding is coming from the breakfast companies as well and these kinds of things. So she points to one survey in which the disclaimer says that the uh, the authors have received gifts, grants or consulting fees from multiple organizations that market products commonly consumed at breakfast, including Kraft Foods, Kellogg Company, Cooking Light Magazine, Quaker, the Dairy Research Institute, the Egg Board, Global Dairy Platform, Arla, Cargo, McDonald's, General Mills, Walt Disney Company, Retrofit, Nutrisystem, Meta Proteomics, Dunkin' Donuts, Obam Pan, Bay State Milling Company, and Post Cereals. None of these organizations were involved in the support, design, analysis, or interpretation of this study, of course. And yet, this is who is funding the industry around these things. There was a great... Um, there was an epic piece by Ian Leslie that we shared in the overprint from The Guardian a few weeks back that was sort of tracing how these things work throughout history and, you know, the how common knowledge is reinforced, particularly in these ideas of, say, sugar mm-hmm. and and fat and what's important versus, you know, what the which one of those is bad for us. And that was great, too. Yeah. Like, that was just as interesting as the Chronicle. I think it was Chronicle one. Yeah. Because, like, she – or this article, too – talked about like the lived experience of these scientists who are in these situations where they're funded by certain people and they're up against other scientists and other like prevailing wisdom and how it's just a product of like the this like these personal situations it historicizes it but it's not just oh we were ignorant then and now we know more it's like there were there are always like these these just different right. interests that have different amounts of you know, institutional representation and personalities that end up defining these things. And they were never any more like... There's a beautiful quote from that that I think just is always worth keeping in mind when we're talking about our presumptions of, of wellness and nutrition and these things. So... This makes scientific inquiry prone to the eternal rules of human social life, deference to the charismatic, herding towards majority opinion, punishment for deviance, and intense discomfort with admitting to error. Of course, such tendencies are precisely what the scientific method was invented to correct for, and over the long run, it does a good job of it. In the long run, however, we're all dead, quite possibly sooner than we would be if we hadn't been following a diet based on poor advice. That's exactly (laughs) the paragraph that I've copied here, the only one. All right, it's PM time. This week we want to look at the smoke rising from the top of Burning Man. When it was founded in the late 80s, it had no scheduler paid performers, and one of the only rules was don't interfere with anyone else's immediate experience, or in translation for its more casual expression, don't harsh anyone's vibe. And no guns in central camp. Also, don't harsh anyone's vibe. <laughs> Since then, it's become a formal non-profit organization with a for-profit limited liability subsidiary. Um, 
Do you remember the name? I of- think it was D Decommodification LLC. That's right. <laughs> and in 2015, had an attendance of 70,000 burners. And while some argue that it stayed true to its original anarchic spirit, others claim that its additional rules and organizational infrastructure have crushed the creative freedom it once represented. Approved burn platforms, no dogs, no fireworks, a grid street structure, an 11 kilometer long plastic peripheral fence, re entry wristbands, and let's not forget an admission price of $390 US, not including a vehicle pass. And if you in some way break some of those rules, you're going to probably have to answer to some sort of committee of social standards. Where there was once anarchy, inclusiveness, and self expression, now there's only libertarianism, hiddenism, scenesterism, and elite techno utopian networking opportunities. Opportunities, some of which are spreading out into new environments with where Eric Schmidt can wear any hat he damn well pleases. <laughs> Forget your rules. This raises a bigger question about radical freedom. Can it scale or does growth inevitably lead to rules, regulation, and commodification? Has the Burning Man turned to ashes and whose fault is it, Eli? Who, me? I don't know. Are you blaming <laughs> Good me? <answer. laughs> Did you ruin Burning Man? <laughs> uh, no, I haven't even been, but I also don't want to go for the record, whoever's listening. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think the, the, the question I'm interested in there is uh, this idea of scaling something like that, right? I mean, it's, it's bound to change. Uh, I think it's naive to think it could remain what it is um, the more popular it gets. But of course, there is also fighting the, the you know, the, the commercialization and all of that. But I don't know. I don't have a strong opinion beyond that. I mean, it's one of those things that, I mean, I, I have some very close friends who are proud burners and they, they, they uh, cling to a certain sense of what it once was. But I mean, there's a disruptive elephant in the room when it comes to this. And that's the, 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 the changing nature of California, particularly, um, and where the money's come from there and the libertarian culture of Silicon Valley and how that is so it's so close in ideology to those sort of rave culture crusty hippie thinking ways that were the founding of of Burning Man that you know with Silicon Valley a lot of it came from the same thing the whole earth catalog thinkers of those kinds of libertarians it's the libertarianism and anarchism there they kind of they get very close together and it makes for an uncomfortable kind of uh, culture clash don't you think yes and now we seem to have a, a different kind of culture class cl- clash between the um the tech elite and uh and uh and and those who were just maybe going there to um, get a transformative experience. So um, those I've never been to Burning Man. Those who have um, uh, told me stories about that was really transformative. Really a place where you you go there and you abandon yourself in in, in ways that are really pr- profoundly transforming yourself. Uh, and uh, and to see this being um, sort of hijacked and the the language. Uh, used uh, like you know Eric Schmidt was saying for the Burning Man for the one percent, which is the other Burning Man, like the the luxury one outside of outside of uh, uh, Las Vegas. The, the 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 article will be in the show note. That's from the Guardian. But this is a high percentage of San Francisco entrepreneurs, and they tend to be winners. Like Eric Schmidt saying this, like uh, this is how you attract. You know, like it's it's very. I don't want to have to like not be around the winners. winner. The, the entire winners discourse is like you know being a winner is also very much what Donald Trump is talking about all the time. And uh, I don't know. I, I I thought it was if I if I thought it was a little bit um, 
uh, like companies talking about being authentic, right? It's just a little bit, you, you hijack a concept and you kind of make it your own, but I don't know what comes out of it. What comes out of something like that where you have Nobu catering for dinner, you've got Ferraris, you've got billionaires, and they have the gut of saying, it, it's important what we do here. The guy organizing this festival outside of Las Vegas was saying, that's what we keep saying. We're shaping the future. These are the people who not only can do it, but the, these are the only people who can. And basically Ugh. the fate what of the entire... What if they all just got on a train? The fate of the entire world yeah. has happened there in that desert, which was yeah. basically... I mean, it's just... Well, I think that there's there's kind of a, a couple things here. I mean, on the one hand, I'm, I'm, I think there's an interesting question of of this group and, the, and Silicon Valley and just the nonsense there. But I actually think it's a red herring with respect to the the question of the original Burning Man and what that's become. Because I think that there it's about, you know, what what is what is the experience that people are after in the first place? I mean, yeah, I, I totally admit to a kind of crotchety East Coast, um, you know, skeptical of hippies, skeptical of mindfulness, um, you know, all of that, all of that crotchetiness. Um, although in theory, I say that I'm sure if I went, I'd have a fabulous time. But I, I think that, it, it does something for a lot of people, but I don't know that it it could possibly be what it once stood for. And but like when it stands for something like from the outside, like to us, you know, we've s- heard stories from friends for years who go and have these experiences, and then we start to see it being written about in uh, the newspaper, and then in like you know Jacobin magazine, mm-hmm. and like. Like the wellness thing, like none of us have been. <laughs> and I mean, okay, <laughs> <laughs> I've tried to get to. Wellness. I've been to wellness, but, but I like I really enjoy the conversation of like I being skeptical about it, and I think that that argument it's a really like a nice crystallization of a few arguments that, like we like to make about society. But then for the people who go, that I know that you know just like go to make music, you know they have a great time just like mm-hmm. playing their music for other people who wouldn't otherwise hear it, and like all this stuff is just like not even there to them, right? Totally, and I'm being a hater. There, I admit it. There, there is a there is a thing that happens, you know, and this happens. It's a condition of humanity, and um, when whenever there is some small outsider thing, um, it can be a festival, it can be a neighborhood, it can be a bar, it can be a band, it can be whatever it is. It starts with it can a small be group. Brooklyn. It, 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 can, it can be. be bro- it's an authentic experience that is genuinely discovered and is self-created. And then new waves come in, and it changes, and it's not the original thing anymore. And then there's an and, and then people say it's people not say, the same. And then there are new rules that come in on top of that. That's gonna happen with everything. I, if there is something out there. Mm-hmm. In all of human history, where that hasn't happened, please show it to me yeah. because I think. And that so would then, be, yeah. what do we do? You know, it's like, yeah. like I, 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 I if I'm talking down, to someone who has, <laughs> well, I guess. <laughs> Wait, well, they have solved it then, right? Every time they just ask, ah, screw it, like burn it to the well, ground. Well, this is the thing: is like the people that are dis- dissatisfied do move on and create something new. The interesting, the tension for me, I don't think this the the tech bro thing is entirely a red herring. I think it partly is, but it's. I think. They brought an interesting tension into the mix where they are still seeking that freedom and that transcendence and they genuinely want it. It's right. not some sort of vindictive investment in in a in a market opportunity. Right. There. It, and yeah. the They're ideology the ideologies are, are so close. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what's so profoundly thing. It's like different. A, it, that overlap is just uh, like Silicon Valley just intensifies these personalities um, and just forces them to confront one another. 
and in a way that you know these these tensions are present in a lot of things in our like culture like you're saying with all these sorts of movements or places or whatever but it it's just most particular there and that's why it's so interesting because it like it just seems to be a microcosm that is just uh fun to look at and like i love reading about it and like okay i want to i was originally inclined to try and soften my natural hater stance on this <laughs> bring it ben but i think i've decided i want to double down instead <laughs> all right because yeah. i not only am i uh you know am i skeptical to use my favorite word of um you know what it's likely become but i think patrick and i think on that front patrick you make a good point this is just the case of lo- like this is life this happens things commercialize they grow they change they're not the same but there's something new for people and then to the next generation it can still be very special but in any case it's not what it once was but on top of that i have no sympathy for what it once was i don't care about a bunch of hippies meeting in the desert trying to have a unique experience everyone's trying to live their life Mm -hmm. everyone's trying to do that this is one version of a million versions of people doing this throughout history Mm. it's not it's not a unique thing it's people trying to devote themselves to self-expression i think that is great. I think the uh, anarchico-utopian element of it is not great. I don't believe in that politically. That people can just go out and on on no rules be self, like you know on the basis of zero rules be self-regulating and autonomous and right. But like mm. and again, yeah, that's, and if anything, the these place. two sides, my skepticism, are the same. Watching rules proliferate and people start to bicker and fight as soon as there's more than two people. And you know what? If you have two people, they're gonna fight at some point because they're different. And you fight with yourself. I mean, there's 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 inherent chaos and discord and any kind of utopianism uh yeah. is just gonna end up eating its own yeah and like and to, to to think that it's you it's right now for the first time uh come to this point where it's like worth discussing and you know uh like it, it's reached critical mass and it's no longer sustainable is to say that it once was you know somehow better and somehow like apart from that Right. I think it's the tail end of a particular dream, and that's why it interests me. It's the last gasp of late 80s rave culture and in its particular belief. Right. And that particular subculture around that that was nomadic, that was was basically about the fire and the dance. But can you not find that embedded elsewhere, just not in this one festival? You can find it in evolved forms. And sure, yeah, you can find raves wherever, but big, broad-scale sort of manifestations yeah. of that and like of that the, moment yeah, yeah it's it's that moment and the people of it i think it's it's the last of, of that and I, that's no sad thing like yeah. i say there yeah. are new cultures built on top and maybe of it's that. found better places like maybe that was a a mismatch of like trying to find you know these people supporting one another and then trying to just like all congregate in one place and have an event that has the scale of something that's a little bit more like you know corporate or a little bit more it requires a lot of resources to sustain maybe you're best doing that embedded within your cities and your communities and you know living that more thoroughly more like i I, the the first time i really understood what burning man was about i used to go to um, a particular festival in australia that was more of a conference thing but was somewhat politically sympathetic to that scene um and involved a lot of all these crusties would show up in vans for some reason. Would they would call themselves crusties too? That's not a pejorative. So um, they, you know, and there was this one guy that gave a, a talk at this festival one year that was basically his slideshow from his time at Burning Man, in which he talked about what a great, profound experience he had there. Like, I don't care. Good right. for you. Right. That does not apply to this context. What are you building here? What are you doing with that? You're showing that there are utopian ideas out there. Sure. Okay, now we know that. What are you going to do with it? 
All right, as I'm sure you remember, because you're totally fresh off our last episode, as in every episode of New Mark, we like to close things down by turning to our very reluctantly named, but he has no choice about it, philosopher in residence Eli Bernstein, to give his theoretical two cents on our yammerings. What's got you thinking this week, Eli? Um, so I'd like to return to the AM section on wellness, um, and I'd like to uh, refer to an article that was kind of floating in the background, but that we didn't actually name, which is uh, uh, Natalia Petrzella's When Wellness is a Dirty Word, uh, which she published in the Chronicle of Higher Education a few weeks ago. Uh, it was a great article, and in it she kind of reviews a lot of the skeptical literature on wellness. That, that kind of came out of the uh, academy and she does it justice, but she kind of wants to defend well- wellness um, against those charges. And I think that she's too defensive of it and too apologetic for it. Um, but she did kind of say one thing in passing that I um, thought kind of pointed to a much bigger I- issue. And I'd like to read that passage. So the one thing you need to know about this passage is that she refers to something that she calls intensati, which is quote, an innovative mind-body fitness class. And it was something for which she became um, uh, a licensed instructor. Is that arty like Pilates? Intensati. Yeah, okay. I'm not actually sure. Um, And it was something that she became a licensed instructor for uh, in tandem with her academic teaching. Um, So here's the quote. The crackling excitement of my Intensati students' physical and emotional breakthroughs put my academic teaching into relief. Could I really say my college students left similarly inspired? Where was the visceral joy in a room full of desks, in students fatigued by the all-consuming credentials chase, and hardened by the academic convention of hiding any evidence of vulnerability or wonder? And that's the end of the quote. And I think what that made me think about, um, and this is where I am kind of inclined to defend wellness, is that, you know, on the one hand, we, you know... The, the the skeptical side of us wants to roll our eyes at wellness, at the juice drinkers, at the people that have the fancy, you know, BP free, BPA-free water bottles and the chia seeds and the all, all this trendy stuff. Uh, but on the other hand, there's, there's kind of two sides to this coin. And I think that intellectual life is also kind of at risk of becoming too uh, disengaged from uh, the emotional and the spiritual side of life. Um, uh, you know, wh- whether, you know, it doesn't have to just be nutrition or physical exercise, but just having a sense of of an embodied intelligence. And, you know, the, her illustration of, you know, people being checked out in a classroom or just worrying about credentials, kind of losing a sense of wonder. I think that the need to reconnect with uh, the emotional side uh, of intellectual life um, is connected with an acknowledgement of the body and, and its importance. All right, so that's it for this week on Noonmark. Hope you enjoyed all those nutritious ingredients in the blender. We snuck some chia seeds in there when you weren't looking, but that's okay. They're really good for you. I read that somewhere. Noonmark is brought to you by Make Ready and the Alpine Review. We're produced this week by Eli Bernstein and edited by Nick Jaworski. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play Music Podcast Music Store. Music comes from Southern Shores, made up of our good pals Ben Dalton and Jamie Townsend. You've been listening to Eli, to John De Palma, to Louis-Jacques Darvaux, and to me, Patrick Pittman. Thank you very much for listening and we promise the next one won't take quite this long. Bye.